I remember very distinctly feeling a sense of overwhelm at just the thousands of people there, all of them wearing maybe different religious clothes or donning different religious symbols. But that sense of overwhelm was very immediately replaced with this beautiful presence of the Spirit testifying to me that all of these are God's children. And because of that, they all deserve love and understanding and uh, appreciation in their varied stories and in their diversity. On In Good Faith, we believe that all faith traditions have something to teach us about how God is working in the world and in our lives. So join us to listen, learn, and be amazed at how God is working with us and our neighbors around the world. Today on In Good Faith, we're bringing you two interviews on location, which we recorded at the Parliament of the World's Religions, and that took place earlier this year in August in Chicago. And I was joined there at our booth by producer Leah King. So, Leah, thank you for being here. Hello, good to be back. It was really interesting even just to learn what the Parliament of the World's Religions was. Heather Bigley, our senior producer, I think you actually became aware of this first. Yeah, so the Parliament of World Religions convened in Chicago originally for the first time in 1893, and it was part of the World's Fair. And its purpose was to bring together all of these different world religious leaders. So it was this real attempt uh, to let people speak for themselves about their religion. And it was, in fact, for a lot of people, a lot of Americans, the first time they'd met a Hindu or the first time they'd met a Sikh or the first time they'd met someone from one of these traditions from the East. And so American participation in Hinduism can be tracked back to this Parliament of World Religions. So one of the things that's going on is all of these presentations, of course, huge keynotes with, I think there were 7,000 people there, as well as these breakout sessions. And we applied to present, and we're on a panel for one of these, about faith-based community actions. And we highlighted several folks which we've already featured in a previous episode from the Naperville Interfaith Leaders Association, an amazing and exemplary interfaith association. And you can see that video presentation on YouTube if you go. Yes, to our In Good Faith YouTube channel. So Leah, besides that, we had a booth just to tell people about our podcast. And you were there a great deal of the time, even more than I was. What were people asking as they would walk by and see In Good Faith? We were the only podcast that had a booth, so people were really curious, Why? who do you have on the podcast, and what kind of traditions do you have? And they were really impressed to see our wide variety of inclusion. They were just asking all sorts of things, and it was cool to be exposed to so many different types of people in such a small setting. And I heard many people say that, that what they loved about that was just the variety of people that we would not encounter in everyday life because we live in one specific place. So let's dive into the first of our two interviews. You will hear us on the exhibit floor. Reverend Dallas Conyers comes by. We start chatting and I realize this is a remarkable person who has a real passion for how she sees creation and church and faith and the environment fitting together. Yeah, so Reverend Conyers is a board member of the U.S. CAN Network and Climate Advocacy Lab. She's also a co-chair of the JEDI Committee of U.S. CAN, a co-lead of the policy committed to Midwest Building Decarbonization Coalition, a member of the Black Church, the Green Movement, and an op-ed Project 2021 Public Voices Fellow on the Climate Crisis. So I'm here on the exhibit floor at the Parliament of World Religions, and I'm speaking with... Reverend Dallas Conyers. I am residing currently in South Carolina, but I'm from New York. I'm wondering what it is about climate that ties in with faith here at this Parliament of World Religions. What do you see as the tie-in there? Because many people would say those are separate things. They cannot be separate because the fact of the matter is we live in the world that God created with intentionality. For six days, according to the Christian tradition, God created the heavens and the earth. He parted the waters from the land. He created every plant, 
animal, sea creature, bird, everything that we see. And then he created humans on the sixth day. So for six days, he put all of his thought, his creation, his creativity, his intentionality, and his love and called it good. And then he created humans as caretakers. He gave us an assignment. We're the only creation that has an assignment for our purpose, for our life. And that is to be caretakers and stewards of his land. And that did not mean to be stewards of humans and human prosperity. To be godly stewards, we must be caretakers and stewards of all of God's creation. And the fact of the matter is we're talking about climate because it's in shambles because of the work of humanity. It is not that God's work is falling apart. It is that we are actively poisoning it and disrupting it. And that's what's causing climate change. How did climate and God's creation sort of get uncoupled from religion for so many years? Because it makes people uncomfortable. The fact of the matter is our religious institutions are some of the richest institutions in the world. And they are deeply invested in and have a lot of control of what land is used for. And so they are actively investing in some of the industries that are actively destroying our earth. And that creates an uncomfortable space for people who have had power in decision-making on this for decades. And they don't want to look up and say, this is my legacy. They'd rather just say, you're overreacting. It's more comfortable to say that. And it also puts a lot of onus on those same religious leaders to say we have to change this and we have to change the way we do everything and the way we think about everything and who and what we're responsible for. And it creates a lot more pressure and responsibility, but quite frankly, as people of faith, that was always our responsibility. This is a world parliament, people from so many different traditions here. Are you finding common connections, even coming from different faiths, on this aspect? Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, I just passed a board in one of the tents over there, and it has this beautiful tree, and it lists all the major world religions and what it thinks about environment and climate in each of the world religions. And so it pulled out scripture from all of them to show we all have this commonality of we're supposed to be caretakers and stewards of this earth. It's here. Dallas, thank you so much. When did you become aware of this in your faith journey? It was a process, but long story, very short, I was sick. I was chronically ill from the time I was a child. By the time I was 22, my doctors had me on 22 pills. I'll never forget that, daily. And I was told I would never get better. Most of the ones that I, I was diagnosed with have no cure. And I was online for neurosurgery for seven years with nine different neurosurgeons telling me they would have to cut open my skull just to relieve some of my symptoms. I never had that surgery. Through a process of just God's intervention and guidance, always speaking to me saying, that is not the path I want from you. They would never promise a healing from that surgery, just partial relief, mind you, of some of the symptoms. I changed my diet. I got connected with the earth. I became a sustainable agriculturalist and permaculturalist. I got involved in fermentation. I became a yoga instructor. As a Baptist preacher, I went and learned, an ordained minister nonetheless, I was told by God during a prayer fast that I need to go learn how to do yoga and teach yoga. And my body healed. All these symptoms that were having me on these lists, all these pills that they had me trying to take, none of them became necessary anymore. I was completely functional and able again. It was just trusting in God and learning about how God is in everything. And if we just align with the way he asked us to live in his word and pay attention that our bodies are also his creation and therefore deserve care and stewardship, then we would not only heal ourselves, but we would heal the land around us because that's what all of that he taught me about my healing process was. That I not only have to care for me, but the soil that I grow my food in needs to be cared for. That how I treat my body and the people in my community need to be cared for so they have energy and time and well-being to care for me. It's just, it's a cycle and it's a circle and it's intricate and it's all woven back through God. I love thinking of ourselves, being reminded of ourselves as a creation. We usually think of ourselves living in this creation, Mm-mm. autonomous. No, the scripture says our bodies are not our own, right? That's not just the implication of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, but it also says that Jesus created us for our good works. Like, not only that we were created in, in perfection, but we were created to do specific work. 
we are the only part of God's creation that was given a job. And it says that he will meld us and heal us and reform us. He is a shaper. I can't think of a part of scripture that describes the intricacy of man and God, that relationship that doesn't show us as being formed and shaped and continually being open to shaping and reforming by God. Where is your church, Dallas? So I go to Macedonia Missionary Baptist Church, but my ministry is worldwide. I do climate and environmental justice work. Really as an advocate, I try to bring this moral purpose, this absolute divine necessity of making sure that God's people are really the light of the world. And I do a lot of work in our United Nations venues under the UNFCCC, which is United Nations Conference of Climate Change Forum. So I really am just everywhere that I can be. And I'm trying most especially to be everywhere where I'm supposed to be to make sure that people hear that you have a purpose in your creation. And if you just live it out, we have all the tools we need to not only reverse climate change, but to help roll back this poverty of mental health that we're experiencing, the poverty of financial health, the poverty of nutritional health, the poverty of love and peace and a willingness to stand for those things and fight for them just as much as people are fighting for money. I hate to keep you longer, but if you have a minute, you're really delightful to speak with. Did you always have a belief? It sounds like maybe you were taught this, but did you always believe that? Or how did you come to that? So my grandmother and my father even were very, very... My grandmother was a church mother, like very church. I did not grow up in a church. I would say I was about seven years old and sitting in church, and I was one of those kids just laying my head in her lap and eating a mint so I could sit down and stay still. But by the time I was about 14 or 15, I was very doubtful. Many people expressed to me that the Bible was the living word of God. And I was like, how is that possible? It's been edited throughout the centuries. We know the political machinations behind it. We know the translations have been messed up and it's flawed. And I invited Jehovah's Witness. I was that person. I was that kind of a jerk of a kid to come into my home and I would challenge her. And I'd be like, yeah, we could do a Bible study. Let me show you and break your faith. And she was kind. She was, she was what so many Jehovah's Witnesses usually are, which is patient and faithful and showing me her faith with love. And I know I got on her nerves, but she never expressed that. But, you know, I didn't have a very happy social life in high school. Like many kids, I was full of angst and <laughs> anxiety and all that other stuff. But I remember God touching me during an especially sad time in my life. And as somebody who wasn't an active believer, he touched me in a way that I knew it was God. And I wasn't ready yet to embrace God as God, but I embraced that touch. And fast forward, I lost use of both of my knees. I got hit by a message of bicycles. So if you've ever been in New York City and you've seen those messages of bicycles, they got some oomph, right? They are. Watch out. Yeah, I flew. Like, he hit me so hard that I woke up several feet down from my belongings that had fallen in the street. And I had a concussion and didn't know it. And that was the first of a series of September accidents in which God put me closer to him. So every time I got a major injury, and it literally would happen in September every other year for a couple of years, every time I got a major injury, I got closer to God. And it was like little sit downs for God to be able to speak to me until I had a, a... a car accident in which I had brain damage and physical damage and I lost use of one arm. I was losing use of another arm. I couldn't walk without support. As God took me through those times, once I had that car accident, I literally couldn't do much of anything but lay in my bed and read the Bible. (laughs) I would put the Bible next to my head and I would turn because I couldn't sit up. I couldn't lay down on my arms. I would have to just read from that prone position. And that was a great time with God because he healed all the emotional hurt that I had. He healed all of the psychological pain. And I needed that time, as much pain as my body was in, all of that emotional psychological pain was more corrosive to my divine purpose than the physical pain ever could be. And so when I was able to get up from that bed, that's when I went to my pastor and said, I, I think I'm supposed to be a minister. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and he was just like, and he hadn't met me before. I had just moved. That's when I moved to South Carolina. And he looks at me, he's like, 
Sure. And he put me through years of study, of study and training before I became a licensed minister. So you mentioned sort of feeling that call. You mentioned that God was guiding you not to do the surgeries they were recommending, yes. all of that. Lots of us reach out and we pray, and we're wondering how an answer will come. Like, is it going to be a word in our heart? Is it going to be in our mind? Is it going to be the something someone says to us? And how do you perceive that direction or that guidance? You know, that's a great question, and it and you have to pay attention. The first thing is to know God's voice. You have to recognize almost the cadence of the voice of God. It's, that's why it's important to read the Bible. I know I was a doubter of the Bible, but what I found is that if you pray before you read, it's the Holy Spirit that helps you to read. And you learn that voice as you read his word and as revelation of scripture is given to you. So when it comes to everyday life, you know his voice already because the Holy Spirit has been speaking it to you as you read your word on a daily basis, even if it's just one verse or two verses a day. Really, I can't process more than three verses a day in depth. It takes time. Which is great because you're not rushing through it just to, to meet a goal. You're actually just saying, this is the meaning I'm after, whether it's a one or two or what, three, like, like you said. Whatever God needs to speak to me. And sometimes it takes time to move on from those three verses. It shouldn't be a rush process. It should be the deepening of a relationship. You should feel like you're, you're slowly sliding your hand into the hand of God and seeing how you fit together. And then there's stillness, that yogic stillness. A lot of people are like, yogic is not of God. No, actually yoga helps people to find that mental stillness so that they can hear the still, small voice of God. Yeah. So that if you're in a situation of massive panic, when you are trained in meditation, you can automatically pull into that stillness you have trained yourself into through yoga and say, I am now in a place of stillness. I can hear the still, small voice of God speaking to me. And between those two, that consistent relationship of reading his word and prayer and of meditating on a regular basis, you will hear and understand all. And it doesn't always sound like a sound. Sometimes it's somebody else's voice speaking in that cadence that you've learned through those periods of meditation. And you're like, that's the way God was, oh, God is using you to say that to me. And that's why community is so important because God will use the people around you to speak what he needs. You just have to pay attention to your surroundings, but you first have to know God's voice in you. You know, you make me think of Jesus withdrawing to a quiet place before he gives a sermon or after some big event. We can't always just take off for the hills. No. But it sounds like you've learned this internal way of, of having that kind of moment. Yes, and mind you, I am not perfect. I am actually on a path of going back to that. So I can tell you, this works because when I stop doing it, I notice. <laughs> and when I get back to it, it's like, this is great. Why don't I ever stop? So it's still a struggle for me. But yes, Jesus models this. And the reason why it's great to follow Jesus, like you just said, is because he shows us that he takes that time when he has that time. He recharged when he has that time. He didn't just say, I'm gonna sit down and even though it would be so relaxing to sit in front of the TV and just veg out. I like that myself. <laughs> he didn't go to taverns and drink with his disciples. He didn't sit in the comfort of women. He took the time that he had to go find peace and space so that when he needed it, in those uproarious moments, he had that practice, that consistency to be able to draw into that space mentally as soon as he needed it. So I want to come full circle now, mm. Reverend Dallas, because <laughs> uh, I've just been over here with silent amens to everything you've been saying. So we started off with climate and mm. that stewardship that God gave us over the creation and that we are the only one of his creations that was given this job. When you go someplace and you speak to people who are in various religious traditions, or maybe particularly Christian, if they are reticent to hear that mission or, or that cause you're talking about, does it help that you're drawing from the scripture and saying, here it is right here in, in Genesis or wherever else it might be? Yes. The Great Commission is that we're all ministers. And so when you speak to people of faith and you relate this to the fact that this is a part of our life ministry. It gives 
credence. This is not just Dallas's opinion. This is not just that Dallas loves going on hikes and swimming in rivers and oceans and she wants you to stop polluting them so that she could enjoy this, right? This is God saying this. And if you are able to look at your relationship with God and see how you are through your actions, living out that purpose, it gives them a freedom and a boldness to stand up against common opinion. Like you said, this is not a popular thing in church. It's been separated and it was separated intentionally. So you need an especial amount of courage to stand up and knit those two things back together. That takes boldness. That takes the boldness of the spirit. That takes the divine word and message. You know, the armor of God, you know, shot in your feet in the armor of the scripture. I need to walk in that scripture. Because if I don't and I just make this about me, then it's, it's really not worth anything. But if it's about God and his word and living out his word, then that is something that we are all tasked to live out. Is there something I should ask you about your faith journey that I don't know to ask? The first thing I would say is that we tend to forget that grace is, as Joseph Prince says it, unmerited favor of God. And that all the good that we have that we don't deserve is because God wants to give it to us. In fact, he wanted to give it to us that he sacrificed his only begotten son in order for us to have it. Because remember, the sacrifice happened after he kind of washed his hands of us. He said, you guys, you humans, not good creation, wiping you out in the flood. After the flood, he looked at us, he said, y'all did not learn your lesson. Y'all are just flawed, but I still love you. And so I'm going to sacrifice my loved, my perfect child, my perfect human creation to give you access to me, just in and of yourself. And every time we don't take the opportunity to turn our face and repent and say, God, please help us out of our sin, we're turning away from that love that he gave us in that sacrifice. We're turning away from the opportunity to have direct relationship with him because of our own shame. But he got over that. He got over that shame. He got over that anger way before we were born through that sacrifice. And how much does it hurt him when we can't get past our own shame and our own self-anger to reach back out to him and accept the love that he gives us? So no matter how much hurt and pain and anger we're carrying at ourselves, how much disappointment we're carrying at other men and humankind, we have to get past that and reach for God's love because he gave everything for us to have it. And the other thing I would say as people of God, he called us the salt of the earth. And salt is not just good flavor, it enhances flavor, just as stewards are supposed to enhance what they are caring for. But salt also burns when it's in wounds. So we will be in position as people of faith, especially Christian faith, to understand that when we speak the truth of God in healing the world, especially around climate, it won't always feel good to the people who are hearing it that are causing the wounds. Because salt burns even as it heals. And we need to be salty again. We'll make that our new podcast motto, just a little saltier. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that, I, I accept. <laughs> You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. We've just heard from Reverend Dallas Conyers, who we spoke to on location at the Parliament of the World's Religions this summer, 2023, in Chicago, Illinois. And it was great that she was so willing to say, hey, if you're willing to hear my message, let's just do it right now in the middle of the exhibit floor. That was (laughs) really, really fun. I was struck, Leah, by her ideas of I'm trying to be where I'm supposed to be to give my message, Mm -hmm. and also her personal messages about feeling directed by God 
in this unusual area for a Baptist minister to learn yoga to create peace and to connect with the creation. Yeah, I loved her diligence in meditation and also her diligence in reading the Bible, you know, laying in bed and just turning her head. I liked how she said, we need to know the cadence of God to be able to hear him in our own lives. Yeah, yeah. So next we find ourselves out on Lake Michigan. It was beautiful. It was 15 feet, as you'll hear me say, from the lake. We talked to Jackson Washburn, who has this really unique distinction of, in 2015, he actually spoke as a teenager at a past Parliament of the World's Religions in Salt Lake City. So we'll hear about that. Now, here he is having just finished his master's at Harvard Divinity School and coming with this whole new perspective. Yeah, so Jackson Washburn, he has worked or interned with or contributed to organizations like Faith Matters Foundation, uh, Book of Mormon Central by Common Consent, the Journal of Mormon History, and the Joseph Smith Papers Project, and Wayfair Magazine, among others. You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. I'm on the shores of Lake Michigan, literally 15 feet away from Lake Michigan, which is where the conference center is, the convention center for the Parliament of World Religions. And you'll hear some chanting in the background, which is a constant feature out here on the balcony, and also blacksmiths beating weapons into useful objects, which has a sort of scriptural significance. Jackson, thank you for talking to me. Thank you so much, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. So I've become aware of you and your interfaith work and interfaith studies over the years from things you've published and and posted online. But you actually started in high school doing interfaith relations and actually going to a previous parliament. I wonder if just briefly you could tell me how you did that and unlike most teenagers, why that appealed to you. I'm also trying to understand exactly what appealed to me at the time because at least compared to my peers, it was rather unique. But I was raised in a fully traditional Latter-day Saint household. As far as kind of interfaith dynamics go, I was really exposed to that world when I was 12 and my mother converted out of the faith and became a non-denominational Christian. And so suddenly my parents found themselves in a mixed faith marriage. And through my kind of early teenage to high school years, my siblings and I would attend both faith communities actively. Uh, My dad's LDS ward and and my mom's local church. And that early exposure to multiple religious communities really cracked open my world. And I quickly realized that I'm a nerd for religion. So it was around that time that I was attending a high school with a large degree of religious diversity, a lot of peers of mine weren't LDS. They might be Muslim or Jewish or different kinds of Christians, Hindus, Buddhists. And just at lunch, I found that we would often talk about our faiths, talk about our different upbringings. And I had this impulse to move these conversations to a bit more of a formal space. And so I started to be engaged in organizing and running interfaith student clubs at the high school level where we would bring in guest speakers from local religious communities and places of worship who would be able to, after school, present and share a bit about their faith and their religious beliefs. We would take field trips every now and then to visit these same places of worship. So it was that kind of like early encounter with diversity that I really fell in love with and and kind of primed me to, in 2015, encounter the Parliament of the World's Religions. I think I was online and just Googling interfaith resources and just a targeted advertisement showed up and living in Arizona, it felt just completely opportune that uh, the parliament would come to Salt Lake City. So I made the arrangements and submitted an application to present and I, I was able to speak and share a presentation on the need for pluralism and interfaith resources at high school level to try and promote this kind of religious literacy and interfaith understanding for students that I believe are mature enough and, and ready enough for those kinds of conversations. 
So a lot of people might say, well, it's wonderful that we learn to get along with each other and treat each other kindly, but let's focus on our own faiths. What did you understand that made you think this was an important enough thing that actually you have pursued it into your academic career? Well, a lot of times when people ask me, like, how I got into religious studies or what I find compelling or appealing about it, I go time and time again back to this personal understanding and, and drive to learn about other people's stories. And, and I think perhaps there's no more powerful vehicle for human stories than religion. In religion, we find the kind of culmination of people's hopes and fears and morals, their values, their aspirations. And I find that to be very beautiful. And because of the pervasiveness of religion across the globe, across societies, we can see it intersecting with so many different aspects of life, you know, whether it's politics or law or agriculture, or you could name whatever subject. Religion has just as broad of a belonging within the human tapestry as, as anything else. And, and so I find that very powerful. I find it to be a, a really useful means of learning about other people and, and connecting with them on a very deep level. I wonder if you'd talk to me about your undergraduate degree and then what you decided to do for grad school. Yeah, so naturally with this passion and, and after uh, several years of gauging various interfaith contexts at the high school level, I learned that religious studies was a, an active area of, of study and was a, a road that I could go down. So I attended Arizona State University and got a bachelor's degrees in religious studies and history. And so I did a year of schooling first after graduating high school, then served an LDS mission to Armenia. And after my mission came back and finished my degree. And it was really interesting moving from kind of the social side of interreligious studies to more of the academic side where I learned more professional or scholarly methods and frameworks for understanding religion, discussing religion and researching and writing about religion. So a mission to Armenia, the very first country or kingdom at the time to adopt Christianity That's officially. Correct. Do you feel like you got some insight into how the earliest Christians were worshiping or how they conducted themselves? Or how much can we know about that far back? Yeah, well, just like other aspects of antiquity, there is a lot that's kind of obscured or, or lost to time. There's a lot of legends and traditions that have been passed down through the generations. But in the case of Armenia, the story is written in the stone. And that was something that I found so beautiful, just standing in the land there itself. It was hard not to be overwhelmed with this feeling that th this is an ancient land. It's rich uh, in its religious heritage. When we would take, for instance, hikes just on the countryside, it was so easy to turn the corner and find yourself in the ruins of a monastery from a thousand years ago as the first Christian nation and being predominantly Christian. This Christian faith is everywhere, absolutely everywhere. You know, the, the name of Jesus flows freely from people's lips and it was really so easy to talk to them about Jesus. They were so hospitable. They would invite us into their homes. Granted, you know, if we were maybe talking about religious things that were more unique to the Latter-day Saint tradition, there might be a, a bit more hesitation. But uh, as far as relating to each other in the, the essential Christian message, the Armenians are very devout and, and very committed to that. And I found that to, to be really enriching for my own faith. This was my next question. What do you feel like you got from them that helped your own faith or taught you? Because of the antiquity of Armenian history and thousands of year old faith that their country represents, there's been a lot of suffering. There's been a lot of sacrifice, whether in an ancient context, in positioned in the Caucasus, uh, where along the Silk Road, you have empires coming through, you know, almost every other century, it seems like. Armenia was often in the crossroads of, of many different conquests and, and wars. And yet through all of that, the power of faith was able to preserve their community. You know, there are many other ancient peoples who perhaps weren't so lucky and today maybe don't have a nation or, or might not even exist at all anymore. And if there's any element to the survival of Armenians across history, it's been the power of their faith and the role of their faith community in keeping them together and helping them survive through turbulent times. 
Turbulent is in some ways a kind word. And so that suffering has led to a global diaspora where there are many times more million Armenians outside of Armenia than in the country itself. Uh, it's a global diaspora. And yet still, even as they've been scattered, even as they've had to relocate to many other contexts and with respect to Armenia, still face geopolitical tensions that threaten the, the integrity and, and sovereignty of their nation. The power of, of their faith uh, continues to keep them together as a people. And, and I find that very powerful. I'd like to talk about the whole idea of divinity school, going to Harvard Divinity School. So people might think, oh, that's where you go to learn to become a, a reverend or a pastor or a priest. But I wonder if you could just tell us, first of all, what that means, and then coming from your own faith tradition that is lay leadership, what draws you there? Yeah, so to be honest, I had those same assumptions about Divinity School until about a month before I applied. Uh, in talking to some of the faculty at ASU, who I noticed uh, had backgrounds in Divinity School and yet were scholars as opposed to pastors or ministers of different religious faiths, they explained how, yes, it, it is the case that uh, you know Divinity Schools do provide a lot of pastoral formation for folks of different faiths, but many divinity schools also engage this academic side of religion. And so I applied to a couple different schools and ultimately was able to get in and chose to attend Harvard Divinity School, which was really, it felt like a dream come true. As far as being a Latter-day Saint goes at Divinity School, I think many Latter-day Saints I know who have attended have indeed gone that more academic route in their studies. There are some that have pursued a Master's of Divinity or more of a pastoral route, and yet because we don't have professional clergy in our tradition, for folks that pursue that direction, they might you know, go more the route of chaplaincy or counseling or, or something of that nature, right? Uh, which is still a pastoral form of, of ministry and, and care. At Harvard Divinity School, the, the school itself is non-sectarian, means that it doesn't have a, a formal affiliation with any one uh, religious tradition. And so it's, it's very diverse, very pluralistic, and there are students there from all different backgrounds. There, there's not a single, I would say, majority tradition represented. You know, some groups perhaps have larger numbers than others. You know, there, there were a fair amount of Jews, Unitarian Universalists, maybe mainline Protestants, uh, Catholics, but still there was a wide representation of a, of a plurality of faiths. And, uh, and even within that diversity, the subjects of study for the students themselves were equally diverse, if not more. It, it seems like not two students were studying the exact same thing. And it was very interdisciplinary. I mentioned how religion intersects with so many different aspects of life. You know, a lot of students were actively studying religion and law, religion and medicine, religion and agriculture, and many other fields. So it was a it was a wonderful experience, and and we had the largest uh, LDS cohort in the school's history while I was there, representing probably I would say four percent of the student population, which comes out to eight or nine LDS students. The idea of scholarship applied to religion can go several ways. So I want to ask. Do people find the divine in divinity school? There's no presupposition that anyone has a belief in God or in some divine power. And I'm wondering if people are open about their variety of belief or not belief in scholarly situation like that. One of my biggest surprises in attending divinity school, contrary to maybe some folks that well-intentioned they might be, nonetheless warned me that Okay, you gotta you gotta watch out, you know, for your faith while you're there. They might not respond well to Latter Day Saints. I was very surprised by how actively both the faculty and my peers encouraged me and and frankly celebrated my Latter Day Saint faith and were actively curious in hearing about how it related to maybe the subjects we were studying, how it informed my own lived experiences and the lens that I brought to the conversations. So I had a very positive experience in being a Latter-day Saint at a divinity school. Do you think part of that is because people sensed your own openness and curiosity about their faiths and that you weren't necessarily proselytizing in any way so much as just drawing connections and learning? Yeah, absolutely. I think, especially at the graduate level, many of us had previous educational backgrounds in religious studies, perhaps at the undergrad level. 
And so uh, we were used to being in contexts like this where there would be a large amount of religious diversity and how to kind of traverse those landscapes in ways that are respectful and open and friendly and uh, supportive and and curious uh, and appreciative of one another. As far as your own faith, kind of where you where you began and and where that journey leads you like were you always someone who had some sort of a belief and and how has that traveled through the years mm. i was raised in a in a religious context for folks who themselves are familiar with Latter-day Saint spaces. Uh, I think my upbringing was pretty normal up until it was unique and and a little disrupted with the mixed faith dynamic. To be honest, even though my parents were very supportive and encouraging and respectful, you know, and, and intentional about giving me and my siblings space to follow our own religious paths, it was never a question in my family whether or not our own religious decisions would impact our relationship relationships with one another or or our parents. There were tensions along mixed faith lines because it was new for for all of us. There was kind of that that bottom line that we're supportive of one another. We love one another and that our maybe different or varied religious identities aren't going to get in the way of that. And so for me, even though that was a really great context in which to openly explore and and engage different religious traditions. Nonetheless, it was easy at times to feel some sense of solidarity with Joseph Smith, right? Who at a young age as well, found himself surrounded by a lot of different religious perspectives and really wanted to figure out for himself what path he should follow and where God was calling him. So there were definitely times where because I was in these different religious settings. And I should say as well, uh, sometimes at the evangelical or non-denominational churches I would attend with my mom, sometimes, you know, they would have sermons or content specifically directed towards Mormonism or the Latter-day Saint tradition. You know, certainly not in a let's say, uh, an affirming sense, right? And so uh, I got into a lot of conversations with pastors and and youth ministers about matters of religion. And at times, I think I really struggled with religious scrupulosity and a kind of anxiety about figuring these questions out. So it felt important to you to get it right, so to speak. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, that sense of urgency was probably a reflection of what was being projected at me from a couple different angles. In my LDS ward, for instance, even though, you know, folks there were very supportive of as well of my circumstances, we place, I think, strong emphasis in our tradition about gaining your own testimony. And, you know, with some of these larger religious choices down the line, uh, for instance, in serving a mission, I wanted to know where I stood and uh, make sure that I could be comfortable and confident in my testimony before committing to uh, larger life choices like that. So I did feel different pressures or or stresses at time, but uh, as I moved into my undergraduate studies, I think those largely dissipated. And I think uh, what took place is that I felt a sense of uh, simultaneous openness and curiosity and learning, you know, a spirit of learning towards other religious traditions. But I also felt a sense of confidence and and a kind of foundation within my own Latter-day Saint faith. And I think the reason the two uh, came together is due to a number of statements from our own tradition, from Joseph Smith or other leaders, which encourage us to go out and gather all truths and that, you know, it's a kind of culmination of our of our religion to be open to the ways that God speaks to all of his children. And so once I, I really felt I, I had studied and encountered that, I didn't feel like I had to jettison or water down my Latter-day Saint faith in order to appreciate and feel a sense of holy envy for other faith traditions. Instead, it was because of my Latter-day Saint faith that I felt empowered to engage interfaith spaces and pursue religious studies in a way that has been very generative, very fulfilling, and uh, very spiritually nourishing for me. Would you say you feel a sense of mission in this? I'm looking back at young Jackson actually speaking at the 2015 Parliament of the World's Religions in Salt Lake City. Now here we are, 2023 in Chicago, and you've made a bit of a journey in between that. 
Do you have some sense of being guided or led or that approval for your choices or there's some purpose? I'm being purposefully mystical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, to be honest, Stephen, there have been so many instances where I have felt the spirit in some of the most powerful ways in these interfaith spaces. Um, I remember very distinctly, for instance, at the 2015 parliament, both feeling a sense of overwhelm at just the thousands of people there, you know, all of them wearing maybe different religious clothes or donning different religious symbols and having conversations with one another. But that sense of overwhelm was very immediately replaced with this beautiful presence of the spirit uh, testifying to me that, you know, all of these are God's children. And because of that, they all deserve love and understanding and uh, appreciation in their varied stories and in their diversity. And that same feeling, uh, that confirmation has uh, returned time and time again in a number of the contexts that I've engaged folks of different faiths. And I keep feeling called back to engage these interfaith spaces and to participate in interreligious dialogue and, and promote a kind of understanding here because I don't just think it's important for Latter-day Saints, I think it's important for everyone around the world. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's in the context of your local community, your state, your nation, or, you know, across denominational or religious lines, the fact remains that, you know, we live in a diverse and pluralistic world and there's far too much misunderstanding, there's far too much prejudice and, and hate and I think uh, discontent with one another um, based in misunderstandings or based in an unwillingness to come to the table and break bread with one another. And I, I definitely feel that by engaging positively in these kinds of spaces, we can develop relationships and camaraderie that will only make it easier for us to resolve and approach in dialogue the other issues which might divide or complicate our social engagements. I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention and express my gratitude for the support of my parents in pursuing these passions and interests of mine since I was in high school and, and up till now. There were times where I feel like they saw something in me or believed in me when I didn't feel like I knew what I was doing and, and felt maybe overwhelmed or didn't have the full confidence to lean fully into it. And especially in the case of my father, I can say that he was incredibly supportive and, and came out to see me present at the 2015 Parliament of the World's Religions and uh, has always been a, a very active uh, supporter. And a year and a half ago, he, he passed away of uh, leukemia, unfortunately. But I've been able to carry a portrait of him with me to these different spaces as I've gone on different interfaith journeys. You know, even though I, I miss him and, and had to navigate kind of the this new space of grief, I continue to feel his love and support uh, as I engage this space. So maybe that's the, the force you mentioned earlier that continues to draw me back to these things because I, I, I have full confidence in his love and support for me in, in pursuing these things and want to continue that forward. That was Jackson Washburn. We spoke to him at the Chicago Parliament of the World's Religions meeting. This doesn't happen every year, sort of like the Olympics. It's every few years when they organize it. And I really liked the question that I was dying to ask and finally got to ask, do people find divinity at divinity school? <laughs> because we've heard the warnings. Well, if you study this in a scholarly manner, you may lose your faith. And for him, it seems really to have been the opposite, that he felt really encouraged to share his faith and supported and even respected for that. Yeah, I loved his comments on this dual curiosity. Like the more he engaged himself in learning about others' traditions, they would ask him questions about his own. And I think that was kind of a theme at the conference. Everyone was engaged in this curiosity and wanting to learn more about others. I loved hearing from Jackson. He talks about identifying with Joseph Smith as a young person. Like, here I am in the middle of it, having to choose, making myself aware and fully engaging. There's other ways one could respond to this uh, this happening in your life, and that yeah, could be to yeah. go into your bedroom and close the door, right? I, just, <laughs> I don't, I, you know, it's too much for me. But here's a person who decided to make a blessing out of a challenge. And this idea he has about feeling the Spirit of God, you know, witness to him that these are all God's children and they all deserve respect. I love that. That is confirmed for me too. That's not him in church. That's him 
at a parliament and meeting all of these people from right. around the world yeah. and hearing individual parts of the discussion. I really loved both with our first guest, Reverend Dallas Conyers, and with Jackson. You feel their sense of mission. Yeah. And I think I feel this sense of preparation. Not that they loved what they went through. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that applies to all of us, but that it prepares us and teaches us if, if we're paying attention. And that's kind of a, what I'm pulling out of this is, I'm, what am I paying attention to in my own life? I also, I have to say, that chanting of people of all different faiths, singing each other's songs, learning each other's songs out on the patio, it's way in the background. But I love that and how willing people were and how curious they were like, oh, tell me I'm, about your song. I get to hear this. And Leah, you got to participate in some of the other activities. So I was able to go outside to the Longar lunch, and we sat on the floor, and people would have big metal buckets of food and come, you know, walking past, rice, 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 and you'd hold your plate up, and they'd give you rice, just this act of service. It was free. You could go, anyone could go to this vegan luncheon, and the act of service performed by a family giving you food was really cool to experience. I also went to the labyrinth and walked through First, I went into this big metal bowl of sorts. You stand inside of it, and they hit it with a mallet, and you can feel the vibrations going up and down your body. And then you walk through this labyrinth in a meditative state, thinking of a question. The guide told me to go in with a question and think about it as I walk through this maze, something I'd never done before. Both of those things, yeah. Yeah, that whole idea of even whether it's a meditation like that or a prayer— or right. reading scripture with the intention of a question and seeking an answer. That's that's a pretty universal principle. Yeah. So we enjoyed our time there. We met so many people going by the booths and attending different workshops. We were glad we got to present. And that was our experience at the, the Parliament of the World's Religions in Chicago. Many thanks to Reverend Dallas Conyers and Jackson Washburn for taking time while they were there at a busy conference to speak with us. This episode was produced by me, Stephen Cap Perry, and Heather Bigley. Our production team also includes Leah King, Katerina Martinich, and Ashton Rowan. Our sound designer is Daniel Phillips. We hope you'll check out the In Good Faith YouTube channel for video versions of many of our interviews. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds sharing their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If interfaith understanding is important to you, be sure and share an episode or leave a comment or review on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts and help spread the word. Find us on Twitter at InGoodFaithPod and on Instagram and Facebook at InGoodFaithPodcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon right here in Good Faith. <laughs>